Yeah. Living Writers. Um, so you stay tuned for that. is as a method of torture. Place someone's head inside of a bell and ring it. And eventually, they'll go insane. The answer is in the beat. Saturdays, 3 to 6 a.m. on WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. They'll go insane. Got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I'm so happy to have Daniel Woodrell here with me in the studio. Daniel, welcome. Oh, thank you, T. I'm looking forward to it. Glad to be here. <laughs> oh, well, it's good to see you. And I should say, we're taping October 25th, 2012. Um, and you're in town and you're, you're doing a reading for the Zell Visiting Writers series and meeting with students and, yes. and talking. And, and so how has it been? Because you've been having a pretty long day so far. or um, uh, It's been <laughs> a, a great day. Um, uh, lovely lunch and talking to students. And then we just did a roundtable discussion over at Hopwood. Oh, the Hopwood Room, mm-hmm. yes, and so and filled with much caffeine. Yes, too. indeed. Right. <laughs> Keep going, Daniel. <laughs> yeah, there's another event. <laughs> <laughs> there is because there's a reading after this, right. and and hopefully some of the listeners will have had a chance to to hear you. Um, and uh, but don't despair if not because Daniel will also be reading um, a little bit from one of. Uh, uh, Winter's Bone, one of your novels, mm-hmm. one of your many novels, and I will name them all. Okay. <laughs> and you can fill in any that I I I just I finished missed. a new one a couple you months di- ago. You so, did. Yeah. When is that one going to be oh, out? September first. Oh, wonderful. Well, maybe we can talk again then, Daniel. Yeah, great. Okay. Great. <laughs> and what's that one called? The Maid's Version. Nice. Mm-hmm. Is this taking place in the Ozarks? It is, but it's. Um, Describe, it describes people from uh, top to bottom of the economic uh, tree and uh, from a variety of uh, social and economic circumstances. It's not specifically all about one neighborhood. Oh, okay. And is the time, what era of time um, are it, you working? It, uh, is, or does it roam? <laughs> it roams a little bit. It's not really told in chronological order, but the key uh, inciting event happens in 1929. But the story carries on up and 
through the 60s and the year 1989 is even ultimately mentioned. So it's about the ramifications of a certain tragic event on a family through multiple generations. And the title, The Maid's Version. Yes. Okay. And is this like, is it a tome when you're... uh, or how many pages did this? It's going to be pretty tight. It's a very crisply written uh, kind of a mosaic, a lot of short descriptions of people who play a role in the, the story but who aren't uh, central to it but who need to be mentioned. So there are a lot of short chapters, uh, mosaic uh, portraits Ooh. of people that are kind of blended around this family saga. Wow. And so does it end up, um, I guess, because what I'm doing, what I should I'll fill everyone in, all listeners in, that we've got, um, we're spoiled with um, these wonderful books here on the table. And um, it's, it's almost overwhelming because we have so many possibilities <laughs> to talk about. So now, of course, I'm talking about the one book that we don't have on the right. table. <laughs> if only I had known to ask for that one, right? Um, but we have uh, Winter's Bone. Uh, which was also made into a film, uh, 2010, right, Daniel, yes. is it, Winter's Bone? Um, which did phenomenally well at Sundance and uh, Academy Awards were, uh, it was nominated for. We've got the Outlaw album, which is your first collection of short stories? Yes, it is. The first short story I ever published is in it, so... so. Some of these have been laying around a while. So, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, it, it had, um, I had published it in like 84, and people kept asking where they could find it because some people remembered it. And uh, so when I put together a collection, I decided to put it in there because... Uh, Which one? Was, it was called Woe to Live On. It was uh, ulti- turned into a novel eventually, but the short yes. story predates the novel by a few years. Oh, and then you and you expanded it into a novel uh, later on. I, I eventually did, um, which we have on the table. Woe yes, to live on. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, everything that's in the story is not in the novel, but uh, the little heart of the story is what ended up becoming the novel. Much to my surprise, I didn't expect it to happen. And was Woe to Live On? Um, that wasn't your first novel, because the first was the, the Bayou Trilogy, was it? Uh, the first book of the Bayou Trilogy was my first, then came Woe to Live On, and then two more uh, steps in the trilogy. Ah, okay. Well, I am jumping us all around here, Daniel. Thank you for being so kind. No, I'm like interrogating you about <laughs> the, the the book order. Um, before we go further, I'll read, I'll read the short bio um, in the back of the Outlaw album, the, the latest um, the and the, the latest book and the first collection of short stories, but I love that one's from 1984, too. Um, Daniel Woodrell was born in the Missouri Ozarks, left school and enlisted in the Marines the week he turned 17, received his bachelor's degree at age 27, graduated from the Iowa Writers Workshop, and spent a year on a Mishner Fellowship. Winter's Bone, his eighth novel, was made into a film that won the Sundance Film Festival's Best Picture Prize in 2010 and was nominated for four Academy Awards. Five of his novels were selected as New York Times Notable Books of the Year. Tomato Red won the Penn West Award for Fiction in 1999, and The Death of Sweet Mister received the 2011 Clifton Fadiman Medal from the Center for Fiction. The Outlaw album is Woodrell's first collection of stories. He lives in the Ozarks near the Arkansas line with his wife, Katie Estill. And let's do a shout out to Katie now. Hi, yeah. Katie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I hope to meet you one day. Yes. <laughs> and okay. So, so Daniel, 
um, let's fill in some of your biography. This mm-hmm. this writer's life, sort of you you set forth into the world, um, born and raised in the Ozarks, and then you left it right, right as as soon as you could at seventeen. Well, or... I was born in the Ozarks. Uh, my family's been from there since well before the Civil War, about thirty or forty years, eighteen thirty six or eight or something, <clears throat> and uh, which is early down there, and. Uh, but a uh, common Ozark story uh, is that uh, you can't make a living there. So my father dragged us to Saint near St. Louis when I was pretty young uh, so he could get a job and go to college at night uh, oh. and uh, on the GI Bill, which uh, World War II ended up being very helpful to me <laughs> because my dad managed to go to college on the GI Bill. Um, and, and maybe uh, why the Marines also seemed like one of your first it, options, well, too. it did. It did. Uh, it seemed like a kind of almost family tradition kind of thing and uh um i was not enjoying where we had uh, when my father finally graduated from college when i was about 13 suddenly he was um considered a candidate for management and uh he ended up being a low-level manager when they transferred him and uh he moved us to a suburb of kansas city and i just simply could not mesh with the the new world, because uh, where we had, where I had grown up, I could walk everywhere, do things by myself, go everywhere, and out there, way out in the burbs, um, they didn't even bother to have buses. They assumed you had extra cars in the family. <laughs> we did not. So. so then you were sort of trapped out yes, there by the house. Yes, you just isolated yeah. there in a new subdivision with no trees. So um, it wasn't for me. So I um, became disaffected, and I was a good student, but I didn't always show up and uh uh well so. you couldn't get there there wasn't a bus yeah, there no. we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's a very long yeah. walk <laughs> it was. Yeah. so uh, i went in the marines uh, kind you know youthful adventure and that kind of thing sounded i i, I wasn't thinking of, it was during the vietnam war but i wasn't thinking about oh the my, war per uh, se so oh no um i was just thinking about seeing the world and doing things and uh, i came from did it fr- happen that way then or did you get did I did you not have get to go sent to, to Vietnam. Vietnam. No, I was still. I went in the week I turned seventeen. So when I went to my first overseas duty station, I was still about I don't know seventeen and a half or something. So, uh, and at that time, they wanted you to sign a waiver for Vietnam if you were under eighteen, because uh, it was considered pretty bad publicity to <laughs> announce that yeah. more seventeen-year-olds got killed. Apparently, when you turn eighteen, it's no big deal. But uh, yeah, Ooh. yeah, those few months really, you know, right. make a difference. Yeah, so I ended up on Guam, where I body surfing and snorkeling and lived through it. So, <laughs> wow, what twist of fate! Yeah, then. I know, I know. Because I, I mean, not that what we won't keep talking about this one moment in mm-hmm. your life, Daniel. But what if you hadn't enlisted then, and then you were drafted, right. and then you were sent away the I following know. year? Or so, and well, the irony that, is, I enlisted in the Marine Corps, and uh, turned out the Marine Corps was getting downsized from Vietnam. Uh, Within a year of my enlistment, I did not realize that. But you course. again picked the the better. I know. One. I got it was uh, <laughs> counterintuitive. You would have thought that uh, some of the other branches would have been the safer route if you wanted to avoid Vietnam. But yeah. it turned out the Marine Corps at that time was <laughs> the better bet. So then, body surfing in Guam. Right. <laughs> and then, did you see other parts of the world before? How many years were you? I was in, in two years. Um, and uh, I was in California for off and on for qu- uh, quite a few months on the way over to 
Guam, and then on the way back, I was at Treasure Island going over and coming back in San Francisco, and uh, I was at Camp Pendleton in Southern California before that. And so I got to see that. And then where did you decide to return to? Because we've got this span of years mm-hmm. um, before you you go to Iowa. Right. And how, how did that happen? Were you, while you were, um, I feel like I've read about, there was an Esquire article about you mm-hmm. where there's this great story about your hitchhiking, I yeah. think, to, to Mexico right. for the summer or or just hitchhiking there. And then yeah. on your way back, you're strip searched? or yes. yeah. I've stopped at the border coming back from um, Mexico hitchhiking. I was uh, already knew I wanted to be a writer long before then. And so when did that happen? That before, was, and then we'll get to this hitchhiking. I'm going to say that was 1972. Why? Uh, so why? what happened to you then? That um, I was... Uh, uh, Waiting to start college in the fall of that year, and I decided to go hitchhiking around, um, waiting for the fall semester to start. <clears throat> and so I think this was March, maybe February, March. It was very cold going across the prairie. I remember that. And uh, <laughs> and then you uh, headed north. <laughs> yeah, and uh, no, hopefully uh, they stopped me at the border and uh, took me into a, eventually took me into a white room and had me completely disrobe and do the. Uh, various checks and all the time he was reading my poems to me from out of my journal which he had found in my duffel bag and he uh kept saying not bad now this one's not bad (laughs) and i was standing there naked and that went on for about 45 minutes and then they put me back in the other room with everybody else who was waiting was it because your journal was so good they uh, they were like god this is a page turner it was a little um more iffy than that. It was never adequately explained to me why I was being kept there. I just was, you know. Uh-huh. And eventually I was taken into a room to talk to um, some uh, agents who uh, saw that I had been recently <clears throat> out of the Marine Corps and basically said, cut him loose. Ah, so, okay. So it was the American side that stopped you. It was. And that's why they could also very easily read, read yes, your journal right. as well. Yes, and no, it was the American side, not the... And in those days, a lot of people carried snuff. Uh, it was kind of a hippie thing to do to have snuff. And they came in these little round canisters, and you'd turn it to the opening and tap it out on your finger and snort it. Oh. And it was uh, just tobacco snuff. But it looked suspiciously like, like brown tar heroin. Oh, oh. <laughs> that's what the guy said to me there. But then another guy took a sniff of it and said, no, that's snuff. My grandpa did that. And I said, yeah, it's just snuff. It's so. just, well, maybe we'll take, let's take a short break now on mm-hmm. it's just snuff. Right. <laughs> and then we'll come back and we'll talk more with Daniel Woodrell um, to name the books on the table here. Winter's Bone, The Outlaw Album, Give Us a Kiss, The Death of Sweet Mister, Woe to Live On, Tomato Red, The Bayou Trilogy, Um, You've got living writers. Daniel Woodrell will be right back. Remember when we'd get together, burn the candle, don't you know? Smoke and drink and live forever. Tell us no
kill that bastard This time I'm not gonna miss This time there ain't no doubt about it Let me be quite clear on this Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Daniel Woodrell is here. Um, we've got Gus Turner in the engineering chair. And Daniel, who um, you've picked the music for today's show. Uh, so who, could you tell us a little bit about um, the one we just heard? Um, oh, that's a, one of the James McMurtry, who <clears throat> has a lot of good, really good albums. And uh, I think he's fairly well known. Uh, I would oh, sure hope he is. Uh, but he's written on a, an awful lot of really great songs. And he's he is Larry's son, but uh, he's doesn't need to doesn't need that umbrella. He's so. his own McMurtry. He, uh, yeah, he's his R- own. Is McMurtry. that the yes, <laughs> indeed? Yeah, yeah, and lots of big presence on YouTube too. So I oh, looked him right? up quickly yeah. uh, before heading to the studio. Wonderful storyteller in he his is. songs. Yes, is, is he's that, really a good writer. Is so? Do you do you know him personally, no, I do or not. is it or? I don't know is, him. Or you've, have you just listened to like the songs and the, the stories and the songs? I'm not songs? sure how I stumbled into him. <clears throat> Somewhere along the line, somebody said, you better give him a listen, uh, you know, years ago. And I did. And I've been pretty uh, dedicated since then. And that turned me on to a lot of other Austin people, some of whom I uh, hadn't heard before, like Jimmy LaFave and some of those people, Ray Wiley Hubbard and others that uh, ended up being also favorites of mine. But, uh, you know, one art, one musician leads you to another it's true yeah yeah and i was thinking um lucinda williams who we'll hear later in the program Mm -hmm. is also this incredible storyteller in her songs yeah right she sure is yeah katie used to work for her dad in fayetteville yeah oh really (laughs) very briefly but for a little while yeah oh so i was wondering if there was overlap because of the area the region yeah we spent time in uh, fayetteville arkansas as well so uh, nothing to do with the university. We just like living there. So, well, okay. Well, let's. Well, we'll get back to some of these places. So, okay. Arkansas, and um, we've got Iowa up ahead of us too, and um, and always we've got to talk about the Ozarks, right? Mm-hmm. We have to. Um, so, was it when you when you moved when the family moved, Daniel? Yep. Was it that you kept going back in the summers? Because did the rest of the family, like your grandparents, did they all stay they all in the region? They all stayed. We were the first generation to, uh, of my direct line to move on. to, uh, And we really only did it for economic reasons. There really, it really is, was and is difficult to make a living in the Ozarks for most people. But it is also like deeply community and family mm-hmm. oriented. Uh, so your you material wealth isn't the most important thing about you. It really isn't. It's... Uh, it's very humble and a religious area, and uh, <clears throat> uh, if you're of low economic means, it's not a black mark on you there. So um, uh, it's a culture that's kind of grown up and is accustomed to living that way, and they don't worry about it very much. The wealthiest people around town, you won't be able to tell it when you see them. So you know, they'll just look like another good old boy with a beat-up pickup truck, you know. Till they go to their house. <laughs> oh, it, right. And then the then the house itself yeah, is different, right. or just the, all the the house will probably be a, a little different. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to. I've never been to the Ozarks, yeah. so I mean, I feel well. I have now a little bit. Well, it's physically through your beautiful. stories. Yeah, <laughs> it is very. You know, the wilderness is gorgeous, and there's a lot of it. The rivers are water clear. Uh, spring fed mostly you can see the bottom from the top usually 
until it gets really deep. And, uh, uh, you know, we just have a lot of natural beauty, but it's a difficult place to make a living. So you either have to um, be okay with, with um, well, I guess, you, you know, living by your, your wits or being able mm-hmm. to, um, although I guess there's some darker elements that you there are you've there always have been some e- yeah. examined in the books yeah right that I mean meth is a big deal the last 20 years or so down there uh, as throughout uh, you know Iowa and every place else actually I even here there's yeah, been like a spike right. in it so. and uh, it got started there a little earlier than it did in some other parts of the country in the the neighborhood I live in it was definitely a big problem for a number of years uh, uh, it has just the luck of the draw is that uh, the people in the neighborhood who were most active have, for one reason or another, been rendered inactive and have moved on. So right now it's we're in a quiet period again, but for many years it was not quiet. And it seems like um, you're when you're writing, Daniel, you're very inclusive in the characters you want to study or, mm-hmm. or populate the... Or I guess... You know what? I won't assume anything. Let no. me ask you: How are um, how how are your characters first coming to you? Uh, well, I always think of a character first uh, when I'm writing, and uh, somebody will begin to intrigue me, and I'll begin to ponder them and what their lives like and what kind of things might be going on in their lives. So, do you just get a visual of someone, you or do you hear like? A... Hear. Uh, usually, I can hear them talking first. I mean, and I I mean uh, not. Uh, disembodied voice, but uh, <laughs> what? Uh, that what? <laughs> I'll, I will sit there and I'm often listening to music uh, while I'm <gasps> sitting there with a notepad and just musing about a person and free associating and, and something will begin to come in. And uh, uh, usually if I can hear the conversation, I begin to get a grip on the overall character. It takes a little while, but, and it's a slower way to write. I don't outline. I, I do... Um, you know, Japanese and painting have a thing called just follow the brush. And uh, I always have that. I have that on my wall. Just follow the brush. Because I don't... Uh, their theory on that painting is that uh, too well-reasoned and too uh, cunningly designed a stratagem is false and renders the vagaries of the heart false. And uh, that uh, the more intuitive approach is uh, where you'll hit the richer vein ultimately. It may, it may be harder. It may take longer. But it'll take you to a truer place, and so I've uh, ever since I became aware of that concept, I've tried to uh, employ it. Follow the brush. Mm-hmm. And when did you? How did you come upon that? Uh, I was reading uh, some article about Japanese art uh, because uh, uh, I like a lot of what I've seen, mostly the ancient stuff. But I'm beginning to become more aware of more recent things. But uh, uh, and then the, I think it's Yukio E or something they call it, and that's where you'll see these paintings where there'll be black brush strokes on white paper, and it'll only be like four strokes, but it'll make a chrysanthemum or something. Uh, yes. And, uh, so evocative yeah, with so so few so... strokes, and uh, that really began to get a grip on me. I, I can't. I'm no good at it, but <laughs> oh, you mean you've tried to do oh, the yeah. painting oh, yeah. too? I tried to do that. Yeah. Ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a kid did it on, you know, finger painting. But <laughs> what was your first um, object that you well, tried, or was it? Or... It was meant to be a flower, but it looked like a dead cat or something. Yeah. 
<laughs> I think I suggest that. I think you should send that for your um the maids version, <laughs> like for the cover. <laughs> yes. People would be like, "Is this a Rorschach test?" Or <laughs> no, no. I think that's lovely. I I think it's interesting too because it seems like this follow the brush. Um, like to get to something that's authentic and genuine, mm-hmm. like discovering, right? Like not knowing the unknowing, yes, right? Not knowing. Um, it seems also there's this direct and spare quality to the prose itself. Mm-hmm. I think that's why that idea immediately resonated with me and uh, actually helped clarify a little bit what I was trying to do already. It sort of put it into words for me, uh, a concept that made it easier for me to understand it, uh, what I was already instinctively trying to do. I was always drawn to very crisp writing. Uh, I was never really a long-winded writer. And then during the era in which I was uh, really uh, learning to write seriously more and more, um, Raymond Carver and other people had come along. And uh, when I was in graduate school, he was one of those names that was just huge for the moment for those few years there. And uh, uh, many he does many things like that, too, extremely spare writing and uh, uh, takes you into unknown places, really. And uh, so he was another one who was an influence. I, I kind of always have underestimated how much of an influence until I pulled some down and read it last summer. And I said, oh, <laughs> I think you learned a lot from him. So, <laughs> And was he... Um... I'm sorry, I don't have like the time uh, frame quite right, but was he there then when you were? No, he was not. He, uh, I think he came back after I left, and I know he had been there before I got there, but he was not there when I was there. Except all like people talking about him Uh, and the work being passed around. Right, and uh, Barry Hanna was teaching there then, and he uh, was a big fan of Carver's and uh, made sure you knew it and and encouraged. he was. Uh, we had what was called form classes then, where you would read books and discuss them to help you understand. Uh, it was really pretty informal discussions, but uh, we all did read the same book. And uh, Carver, a couple of Carvers were put in there for sure. And so, when you were saying like when learning that era, um, when you were seriously learning how to write, mm-hmm. If you've always been writing, right, yeah. like with keeping a journal, right. right, even when you were in high school, mm-hmm. I was writing short stories in high school. So you, that's what. So you knew in high school that you wanted to be a writer. Like I knew some... before then. I it was not until I was about twenty three that uh, I got to the University of Kansas and uh, uh, realized that I didn't really want to do anything else. I thought I was pre law or something, but after one semester, I said, you know, I really the the one that turns me on is. Uh, Writing and literature study, that's where I'm really excited. I'm not as excited about some of the other courses. And so I allowed that just to be the fact. That's what I want to do. And uh, That uh, seems brave, too. Uh, I think something extreme. You know, it was uh, still, I came out of a certain era, and I knew I wasn't going to be a traditional employee very successfully. I knew that wasn't going to work well for me. So I needed something that I really loved that was severely challenging and that I could give myself completely to. I, uh, I really needed the extremity of it. And uh, are you stubborn enough so that, um, I guess, how how did you know to keep going? I guess if by at that point, I was one of the... Mm-hmm. Few writing programs right. now. There's a proliferation, right? There, there, but there are a lot more now than there were then. But with I, so that would have been already some some recognition, right? That yeah. you keep going. 
I didn't understand what Iowa was. I was uh, cajoled into trying to get a straight MA in lit at uh, University of Kansas for one year, and it became by the end of the year, my advisor said, "You know, you don't really care about this part. You want to write. It's obvious your all your efforts are in writing. So why don't you apply to Iowa?" And I said, "What's that?" And that's when I really didn't know what it was. So that's the only school I applied to, and I got in. So. And then um, the rest is history. Well, uh, <laughs> there was a lot more to learn. Yes, and uh, and then is that when you felt like is that the seriously learning writing? Is that I, when you feel like I was already really dedicated to it? But that was the first time I'd been in an environment where there were a lot of people who thought being a writer was a good thing to be, uh-huh. and that kind of encourages you by osmosis, sort of. You were in an environment where. Uh, Prairie Lights Bookstore was a big beacon for things, and uh, there were young writers and writers who had graduated a few years ago, and writers passing through town and stuff, uh, all the cafes and bars and stuff. You never knew who you'd run into. And it was considered, it was exciting because you could get into discussions about writing that could go on into the wee hours and continue the next day. And everybody had favorite writers they wanted to turn you on to many of whom you hadn't run into on your own and so you really expanded in a hurry there and uh, so it was in that regard very beneficial who did you bring in as favorite writers with you like who were you talking to people about uh, you know you there's first... a writer i still i'm always trying to get publishers to pick up again and a guy named robert roper who i i really liked he had a couple of books i early on especially that i really loved and that are out of print and uh, i'm even as recently as a week or so ago, trying to get a publisher of uh, neglected classics interested in him. I, I really liked him. There was a guy named Don Carpenter I really loved. and uh, uh, But, I mean, Thomas McGuane and Jim Harrison were big loves oh, of mine, but I figure, you know, they're very well known. And uh, uh, so I was always trying to bring up names like that. Uh, well, we'll say him again then. Robert Roper and... Robert Roper, yeah. Roper and Don Carpenter. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a short break. Today, we've got Daniel Woodrell here in the studio. You've, you've got Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. We'll be right back. Everybody is wondering what and where they all came from. Everybody is worrying about where they're going to go when the whole thing's done. the mystery be Some say once gone you're gone forever and some say you're gonna come back Some say you rest in the arms of the Savior if in sinful ways you lack Some say that they're coming back in a garden bunch of carrots and little sweeties I think I'll just let the mystery be Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Daniel Woodrell is here in the studio. Daniel, welcome. I'm so glad mm, that you're you. you're it. you're here today, and um and I'm glad you guys who are tuning in are here. Um, so, oh, that was a little Iris Dement 
right? Yes. Yeah. So shout out to her. And when did you hear her music for the first time? Uh, quite a long time ago. And uh, uh, she has a new, uh, she was in mind a lot because she uh, also has a new album out recently. So, and I didn't realize she had married Greg Brown over in Iowa, who, who was the guy, when I was a student at Iowa, he played at the mill a lot, which is a bar we all used to gather at. But we didn't realize Greg Brown was Greg Brown, really. He was the guy who was always playing at the mill. So <laughs> That is crazy, isn't yeah, it? it is. These things, I say. Yeah, and his guitarist, Bo Ramsey, is one of my favorites. So, ah, so music is important to you. It seems yeah. like, like really fuels your your process of creation in ways, It's gone through too. a lot of evolutions of what I find myself focused on. I mean, I've jazz at one time and all blues at one time. And <sighs> last many years, it's been this, I guess we'll call it, folk Americana oriented kind of thing that is really singer songwriters that uh, I often say that if I could have sung I wouldn't have inflicted my novels on you I would have been a singer songwriter so. <laughs> <laughs> well it's still to come look for the album out <laughs> in a couple of autumns guys all right well um just to just before the break we were talking about influences that you took with you to mm -hmm. to Iowa um, and Robert Roper yeah. being one of them. Could you say a little bit more about what what his writing meant to you? Or? Well, Royal County is, uh, the writing's actually very concise. It's uh, kind of an um, American uh, vernacular prose. A uh, little, somewhat folksy. A lot of, mostly short chapters that uh, link up, but there are a couple of them that are much longer. And some of the characters are involved in things that are, close to what you might consider uh, crime fiction or criminal. There's a sheriff of uh, questionable moral turpitude and moral values, and uh, there's another <laughs> character who's up to something sinister who also is passing through Royal County. And it was one of the first times I read something where I thought, this is very close to crime fiction, but it's not crime fiction. It's literature, and he's because he's treating them seriously and writing about them as seriously as any other writer would write about anyone. And it's uh, particularly... Royal County, I just think, is a, a neglected wonder work. And I'm not, I run into other writers once in a while who remember it, too. Uh, uh, and Robert Ward was one. And, uh, and then on Spider Creek was a much longer and uh, more complicated novel, but also one that just completely captivated me. And uh, I think you said it stomped you. It did. It really did. <laughs> I just was, uh, it opens with like an 80-page uh, oration, kind of, that uh, uh, just, you know, Took me in deep and sweeps you into he, the world. He's actually done several other works of fiction since then that also I really love Corville Tales and Mexico Days and Trespassers. He's just a really good writer of fiction. He He's also known for nonfiction, but uh, I, I've just always been a big fan of his fiction. And you're still championing him. You said just I, last week you were talking. I, I was talking to a guy who's trying to round up neglected classics to publish and this is yeah. the second time in the last couple of years one of these guys talked to me and I said try Royal County give yeah. it a look so because in a way you for a while were a neglect neglected classic and even though you're young like I don't mean no, like it's um right because there you're because I feel so lucky because um the publisher kindly sent me the reissues of your mm -hmm. your book with um, Back Bay Books um, that reissued all the, like these great, but for a while they were also out of print, right? And it's um, strange. Just, I or, think just or, about all of those were out of print when they picked them back up. Uh, and some of them, uh, like What Would Live On, had been out of print for 
oh, I guess only a decade this time, but it was out of print for a, almost a decade before the movie was made uh, by Ang Lee, too. So Right. So to uh, something... So and how did how did he stumble across the book to make you know what I mean because I if do it's know. At, it's yeah. that I actually well I may or may not have it right but my memory of things is this there was a woman who worked for him I think her name was Ann Carey I'm not positive but I believe that was the case and previously she'd worked for another producer who had uh, looked at the book and considered it when it was new and. Uh, she and he had discussed it, and she actually had a copy. And it had always lodged in her imagination. When Ang said that, uh, Ang said that as he was finishing Sense and Sensibility, that he wanted to do something a little rougher, uh, you know, no teacups and petticoats, something <laughs> a little rougher. She said, "How about a war thing?" And he said, "Great." And she said, "I got something I want you to read." And uh, <clears throat> the version I received was it only took about a day. Uh, before phone calls began to go out, and then uh, it was the fastest happening deal of any deal I've ever had. So, and and this was the first time yeah. a book was made of yours into a movie For out of the blue, too, with a book that was. Uh, in fact, it, even uh, the uh, old copies of that book were ridiculously overpriced. The hardbacks were a hundred to three hundred dollars because well, they were maybe a rare book very at that rare. point, right? Yeah. So it was a very difficult book to get your hands on to read anymore. So. Uh, and uh, so uh, I got lucky on that one. Well, and now we're lucky because now the books, are, you don't have to pay $130 and you right. can get a copy of it yes. easily uh, with Back Bay Books um, and really great editions, too. Yeah, they are. Nice. That's, a part, that's one of the Little, Bre- uh, Little Brown uh, imprints, the paperback. And uh, yes. they do beautiful work. And I, I really like the way they look. And it's it's also nice because it seems like each of them have, um, they're, they're almost a, saying like you could suggest them for book clubs too mm-hmm. which brings us back to Iowa right. where you it's almost like expanding that community yeah. of talking about That's books right. and let's all right. read the same book and yeah. and have well, some I just did a thing in Lawrence Kansas where it was the big read for the month and they had a month long uh, series of events related to the book leading up to uh my appearance it was that's and that's my alma mater so it was quite gratifying to be there and do that so Oh, that must have been great. And which which book were they reading? Was Winter's it Winter's Bone? Bone? Yes. And what was it like the second time having your book made into a film? Did you did you work at all on the screenplay I too? Did not. Or um, Deborah and her cinematographer and uh, her uh, co-writer and producing partner came down to hang out a little while, and we discussed things and gave them some ideas of things you might want to see or know about. And they wanted to interview some law enforcement and other things to see the. <clears throat> validity of the world I had described in the book, and they found out it was pretty valid. And, uh, and pretty uh, violent. Yes, and uh, no one told them it couldn't happen. And uh, oh. um, But when they came back to make the film, it was on a, I believe it was 24-day shoot. It was a whirlwind. And I wasn't able to get over there during those days. And uh, so, uh, and I didn't, they wrote the screenplay themselves. So I really didn't have any direct influence on it beyond writing the book and encouraging them to come to the region. To the region. So, and yeah. to, 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 And what did you feel like when you saw it then? Uh, I was I was pleased. I They brought me to New York to see a private screening in Greenwich Village and, uh, oh, was in the morning. And, oh, in the morning? Uh, <laughs> yeah, like 10 a.m. or something. And uh, I walked out and I said to my agent who had watched it with me that... Uh, I don't have any complaints. You know, that was my very first feeling walking out of the screen was that I don't have anything to complain about. Um, 
in days to come, you'll say, wait a minute, this scene wasn't there and that mm-hmm. scene wasn't there. But I said, well, so what? The first time you saw it and you walked out, you were very happy and with it. And it felt like a whole yeah. thing. Right. Like and the book was present. Uh, um, the is actually very faithful to the book overall and uh, that's as much as you can hope for and she did what she had to do to change it from a book into a movie I I recognize that they need to do what they have to do to make a book work as a film so and um, Re mm-hmm. with Re um, when you picture her now is it still the character whose voice first came to you when you were making this writing the book she Daniel? was someone who I began to hear how to describe her more than her voice. I began to hear a, a voice kind of describing her and, and that language. So it was kind of like the, it was matched to my sense of her, but uh, it wasn't her speaking so much as, as a voice uh, describing her doing things. And uh, I had been uh, earlier on, I'd been at a grocery store and seen a young woman with couple little kids hanging off her and when she turned around and I saw her face I said oh she is so young so young so young and that's really was uh, when I started thinking about that girl with those two kids and what was life like and one thing led to another and then I uh, played with first person but I didn't like it and uh, I began to hear a language that seemed to fit her and her world because it seems like a very intimate than third person like you you know her like you feel like you know yeah it's a kind of a fluid third it can you know i don't pay attention to the rules yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) if it works it works you know what rules (laughs) (laughs) and and so with with re though daniel is it something like after you saw the movie is somehow their story somehow and their images of her Mm -hmm. does that get into your Ahead, or is she still more connected? Your read it's a, to it's, that woman she at has the merged store now, kind of with the really? way I saw her originally, and then uh, I thought Jennifer Lawrence was so good in the role that uh, I knew when I left seeing the film that uh, I said to my agent, "It's going to be hard for me not to see, see. a lot of re and her, would, and vice versa." Would you mind? Would you mind reading us a, a, a scene? <clears throat> no, no. I'll I'll just read a little bit here from. Uh, early in the novel. Thank you. She'd start with Uncle Teardrop, though Uncle Teardrop scared her. He lived three miles down the creek, but she walked on the railroad tracks. Snow covered the tracks and made humps over the rails, and the twin humps guided her. She broke her own trail through the snow and booted the miles from her path. The morning sky was gray and crouching. The wind had snap and drew water to her eyes. She wore a green hooded sweatshirt and Mamaw's black coat. Ree nearly always wore a dress or skirt, but with combat boots, and the skirt this day was a bluish plaid. Her knees kicked free of the plaid when she threw her long legs forward and stomped the snow. The world seemed huddled and hushed, and her crunching steps cracked loud as axe wax. As she crunched past houses built on yon slopes, yard dogs barked faintly from under porches, but none came into the cold to make a run at her and flash teeth. Smoke poured from every chimney and was promptly flattened east by the wind. There was deer sign trod below trestles that stood over the creek, and thin ice clung around rocks in the shallows. Where the creek forked, she left the tracks and walked uphill through deeper snow beside an old pioneer fence row made of piled stones. Uncle Teardrop's place sat beyond one daunting ridge and up a narrow draw. 
The house had been built small, but extra bedrooms and box windows and other ideas had been added on by different residents who'd had hammers and leftover wood. There always seemed to be walls covered by black tar paper standing alone for months and months, waiting for more walls and a roof to come along and complete a room. Snow stovepipes angled from the house on every which side. Three dogs that were a mess of hunting breeds lived under the big screen deck. Ree had known them since they were pups and called out as she reached the yard, and they came to sniff her nethers and wag welcome. They barked, jumped, and slapped tongues at her until Victoria opened the main door. She said, somebody dead? Not that I heard. Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> what a great place to leave us <laughs> too. Um, it sounded also strangely like it could have been that dis voice describing her that you mm -hmm. mentioned earlier yeah, that, that you actually brought us to yes, there. Yes, basically. Yeah. Is that what it is? Mm -hmm. I just began to sense the, the, you know, the, the tone and tune that fit her and the rhythms that fit her and her world and her uh, situation. And um, you know, Michael Andache, I saw an interview with him, or read it uh, eight years ago, but he said each new book, the challenge is you have to find a language appropriate to that book. It can't be necessarily the language you used on the last book. You have to find a new language for each challenge ahead of you, and that's – I realized I agreed wholeheartedly with that, and that that's sort of why it takes me a while between books to find the find the tone. And. And that is it especially tricky if you're also working in in a a, a region like if you're in mm -hmm. the Ozarks, does that complicate it then because you're in it you've could. got things that you sort of need to be true to to there make are it. certain kinds of uh, music and tones that would seem out of place there wouldn't seem uh, it'd be very hard to make them fit uh, so there are some kinds of uh, syntax and um, enunciations and so forth and uh, points of view that would be difficult to make work in that uh, in that world so uh you know no coward's going to sound funny and uh, <laughs> you know it so but re she definitely also has then but she has her own particular rhythm yeah. as a character in the ozarks mm -hmm. even though you've got other characters right. who live in the ozarks and who speak of, of the place and are of the place mm -hmm. she's got this different rhythm and you show it to us even as you're describing what she's walking, like how she's walking mm -hmm. to Uncle Teardrops, right? Like even in really, the rhythms. Um, you know, one of the people I enjoy reading a great deal is Robinson Jeffers' poetry, which uh, he tells narrative and he tells it in extremely um, pungent, colorful, forceful language. And the stories he tells are not navel-gazing poet stuff. They are rather tough stories he tells often. And... Uh, um, I always kind of enjoyed reading him for fun, and uh, uh, I wanted the uh, Reed was in a situation much like that, and I wanted it, the language to have some of that that uh, presence yes. and rhythm. Yes. Well, thank you for reading. We're going to take a short break, and we'll we'll be back to talk more with Daniel Woodrell. You've got living writers, and now a short break. It's okay, you don't have to be afraid There's nothing to worry about, cause we got it made 
It's just a simple matter of Letting me into your love If you let that feeling come over you Then there's nothing more that you can do Just let it go Let it go love you want hold out your arms it's all right here it's safe and warm welcome back you've got living writers i'm t hetzel today daniel woodrell is here um we just got to hear a short piece from Winter's Bone and meet um, Re, your main character. And we've got the book of short stories here on the table, The Outlaw Album, which is such a great title. Hmm. Actually, you're really good with titles now that I <laughs> just gaze at these. are you? Is that something that um, has always been one of your sort of uh, strengths? Uh, uh, well... I'm glad you think it's there have been people who didn't, but <laughs> right. what do they know? <laughs> right, right, right. They're probably but, uh, rule followers. <laughs> I do think it's important, and uh, I actually, uh, in the early phases of a story, I like to give uh, of working on a novel what I know will be a novel. I like to give it a title, whether that ends up being the title or not. But why? I, uh, it yeah. just begins to focus a certain thing. I know um, that this is going to uh, be organized under this principle or something that I sp- and once I hit the right title it, it works like a tuning fork almost for me and that's also why I'm big on using quotes in the front of books because I often have those very early in the writing process too I'll realize oh boom and it, it again it's uh Sounds mystical, but it is kind of like ing, getting on tune, you know. Yeah. yeah, and then do you have like the quote somewhere up in your writing yeah. space? <laughs> My like, walls are covered. It's pathetic, you know. For you know, a writer, I I have quotable quotes from everybody up there, so uh, <laughs> everywhere. So uh, anything that moves me or intrigues me or that intrigues me and I don't understand exactly what it means, I like to have those up there. So. Hmm. Hope raises no dust. What does that mean? It's interesting. I can't get it out of my mind, but I'm not sure what it means. So, do you do you remember who said that? Paul Eluard. Oh, yeah, French poet. Yeah, so. yeah. All these poets aren't navel gazers, there, right. Daniel. I'd like to go back to that point for a second. No, but all, and also when you said you said when I know it's a novel, mm-hmm. and then I want it to have a working title, right. right? So, what is that feeling? Because looking at what we've got before us, I would almost say you're almost always working on a novel like what do, yeah. you, what do you mean by that when you I, I know and how do you know it might be a novel when i start even if it turns into a short story but there usually comes a point that somewhere in the first 50 pages where i'm sure this is the right way to go is this is a novel no uh it's not going to be cut back to a 15 page short story uh, and uh, i know that in winter's bone it was right around page 20 or something it was actually the chapter I was reading from there and the sh- very short chapter that follows that, when I finished that, I knew it had a grip, it had traction, and it was beginning to happen. Where you begin to have those happy accidents where things you did not plan and could not plan for began to happen in the writing. And what do, what do, what do you mean by that? Um, um, 
I, I just you began to be engaged with material on a level where good ideas were coming to you that you had not planned on you didn't have them in your notes they just as you were writing that one thing began to build into another thing and it began to have a kind of an organic flow of its own and you you just have to be there and go with it and uh follow uh, the brush yeah follow the brush and uh, there, there became a point at which <clears throat> there comes a point usually at which i'm sure this is this is on its way i'm, I'm never sure where exactly they're going but um that seems really important for that yeah. for right. the authentic story. You may have kind of an idea or two that maybe it'll go here or maybe it'll go there, a couple ideas, but there's no guarantee it'll go to either of those places. So And when you get that that feeling, then you just know that you're gonna be in this world for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's uh, and there are certain subjects I've thought about writing about where I realized that it, at at the moment I was considering, it, I said I just don't want to be in there for a year or two. I just this is just a this is just a set of circumstances. I'm not prepared to go into it present for as deeply in as uh, much you as you have to give it for for a year or two, three, whatever it ends up taking. So, because how does that change your day to day? Uh, there are certain kinds of subjects I just don't like to dwell on over and over and over again. So there, sometimes it sounds like a, a um, an intriguing thing to go after, and if if it continues to be intriguing when I play with it, I'll go there. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I realize I don't really want to be locked into this mindset because I like to write from the inside out, which means I have to. I, identify with <clears throat> the world and characters I'm writing about. And, and not vilify them at not all. Not vilify like them. But, um, they're people. But, uh, um, but I'm not always in the mood. And uh, as I'm writing now, the book I just finished is a slight change. And um, the book, the one or two books I'm thinking about for next, uh, both of which are slightly started, neither one of them will be uh, dealing with uh, completely with uh, – poverty in the hills or anything like that they're going to expand the uh, palette a little bit so not in the ozarks no well um they'll be one will be an outgrowth of the ozarks and the other one is uh i'm still playing with writing my uh marine corps things completely so uh, i've been working on it off and on for years and have uh, published some online at narrative and stuff but and those are more nonfiction then no no they're, it's fiction, fiction but okay. um it's a it's an era and everything that was crucial to me whether it's crucial to anybody else and it's been difficult not to uh, want to continue to try to write about it and so that's sort of it seems like what drives you then yeah. like what won't let go of you yeah there's some things, that's right, some things you can't shake and you might as well sit down. And I said to my wife, you know, who is aware that almost at the time the Marine Corps was happening to me, I was already almost thinking about when I'll write about this someday. <clears throat> because there were a lot of what I considered to me important things in my life that happened during that brief time, relatively brief. And uh, uh, she said, uh, maybe you just have to write it and get it out and uh, and uh, give it everything you have and then you finally wrestled with something that's been hanging there since the early 70s you know yeah because maybe there isn't something it's not just about documenting it like the time yeah. the era oh. but like maybe there's something that's still right like your mind's trying to find its way around from yeah. that moment yeah and the, you know what it reminds me we should say Katie is still Dahlia's gone mm-hmm. a novel 
out with St. Martin's Press. Mm-hmm. So this is also, and this is actually, this one has won Crime Fiction Awards. It was a finalist right? for the Hammett, Dashiell Hammett, Dashiell Hammett Award. Yes. <laughs> That's great. And when we lived in San Francisco, we lived on the corner of Dashiell Hammett and Pine. So. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> so it's only right <coughs> yes. that Katie is, is, right. is nominated for that. And that Dahlia's Gone. So another um, another book to put on your, your list, uh, folks out there. Um, so... Speaking of Katie, actually, um, she had said in in one of her interviews, Daniel, that you guys are each other's first readers. Mm-hmm. Like that's how you tick. Yeah. Um, and Katie likes to do a larger number of pages before she wants me to hear them, and and I'm more needy. I kind of want her to hear it before supper. And, uh, oh, day to day. I like to read. I read everything out loud. It's very important to me to have a human voice kind of behind everything, and so I, I'm pretty bad about making her listen regularly. And she feels more confident to give me a slab of pages, uh, you know, a block of pages, and mm-hmm. having me comment uh, then. And uh, but I, we wouldn't be able to live in the Ozarks without each other because uh, um, it's not a literary community or anything and we can talk about books and writing and things in fairly sophisticated ways kind of casually with each other around the house and uh, sometimes get into very complicated discussions of uh, technical elements and things that uh, I don't know what one would do without it somebody who was around uh, who could uh, participate in those kinds of dialogues so and maybe understand like the um, the compulsion, and even like on a daily basis to read. Yeah, exactly. The, the yeah. work aloud, or yeah. to yeah. Right. Yeah. We, earlier today at the roundtable, we were discussing the idea of writers being married because a lot of people advise against that. And I thought, well, I guess if it goes badly, it would Go very be, badly. Be, could be a nightmare, <laughs> I suppose. But uh, in our instance, it's been what's allowed us to live the life we've led and to continue to get better. I hope. Well, then that's, that is, that is something, isn't Mm -hmm. it? It's not something to take lightly. Um, I, I, when, when I was emailing with Katie earlier, Daniel, she said you were headed to Ireland. Yeah. How was that? How was your trip? Oh, I had a great trip. Ireland was great. And then I went to four places in Germany and then I ended up in Vienna for a couple of nights. And, uh, and was this with the Outlaw album? Were you uh, reading stories from it, it in was, Europe or? Uh, in Ireland, it was the Outlaw album, but in Germany and, uh, and in Vienna, uh, they had reissued Death Sweet Mister, which had never been published in German before. So it was to promote that book that I was hitting uh, Dortmund and Hamburg and Berlin oh, Hamburg. and everything. Oh, right. oh, that's wonderful. Oh, my gosh. And Vienna was a, a trip. That did, was a great experience. Did you see the Royal Lipizzan Stallion? I did not get to see that, <laughs> but uh, I did see enough to know I'm, I'll be back. So. That's wonderful. Right. So maybe one of the novels will be set there, right? You There's some know. curious you character know. that yeah, you that, saw. Now, see, that's one of those things where uh, Daniel Woodrow writing about Vienna is going to be a hard sell. But <laughs> Then do it, right? That's <laughs> totally. what, now that's why you'll do it, right. 
Well, Daniel, thanks so much for talking today. I really have enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. It's been a very pleasant conversation. Enjoyed it. And and let's you know let's talk again when um, the maids version comes out, even Terrific. if it's by phone. Okay. You bet. Well, thank yeah. thank you um, today on Living Writers. Daniel Woodrell has been here speaking and reading from Winter's Bone. Uh, we've got the Outlaw album, collection of short stories. Give us a kiss. The death of Sweet Mister. All the Germans are over there cheering it on now. <laughs> Woe to live on. Tomato Red, the Bayou Trilogy, and also by Katie Still, Dahlia's Gone. You've been listening to Living Writers. Thanks again to Gus. Thanks to all you out there listening. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, February 20th, 2013. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, in Syria, a government airstrike hits a suburb in Damascus as residents in homes describe shortages of food, water, and medical supplies. Political watchdogs sue the IRS, challenging the tax-exempt status for 501c4 nonprofits, also called dark money groups that spent hundreds of millions of dollars last election. And prisoner advocates say the FCC may finally be taking action to address the high costs of collect calls from prison. Those stories and more coming up after this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. Cameroon's president has instructed security forces to take every measure necessary to find seven French citizens taken hostage yesterday by gunmen in the far north region of the country. FSRN's Gala Kilian Chimtum reports from Yaoundé. Because of the deteriorating security situation in Cameroon, France has instructed its citizens to leave the northern region. It's blaming the kidnapping on the Nigerian Islamist group Boko Haram. Although the group has not claimed responsibility for the attack, French security forces are helping the government locate the family. Janba Akoru is a Cameroonian journalist who has worked extensively in the northern regions. This is not the first time that uh, we had heard about the invasion of Boko Haram elements into the far north region. The first time was at Amchide, a border town between Cameroon and Nigeria. Too often the Cameroonian site is not secure and Boko Haram had had the tendency of moving in. Akuro says the lack of security has also allowed Sudanese poachers to enter, kill elephants in Bubajida 